They pretend to have attacks launched by Ukraine against Russians. And therefore, it's a provocation against Russia and allows Russia and Putin to basically say, hey, we're going to defend our people. They commonly call them death note or kill list. If there's a threat that says, here's my kill list and these are the people I'm going to kill. That's enough right there to charge. I knew that uh, despite the inflated opinion I had about my own talents, that if I was covering a story that Frank was covering, I wasn't going to get the beat on that story. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A roller coaster week on the Russian Ukrainian border with reports that Putin was planning to invade as early as Wednesday. Now, when Wednesday rolled around, the Kremlin claimed they were pulling troops back from the border, a claim the Pentagon said they couldn't confirm. U.S. intelligence still believes the invasion is not only possible, but highly probable. Lieutenant Colonel Rocky Rishkovsky appeared on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. And it's very unusual when the when especially the White House and the Department of State and the Pentagon basically release intelligence, as they have done in this situation, where they've basically put a date. And I believe that I truly believe that Russia was going to uh, launch their attack on the 16th. But because the United States put it out there and had our Western allies talking all about it, that Russia is going to invade on Wednesday that Russia kind of pulled back and they're continuing their false flag operations. And so that people understand what a false flag operation is, is they pretend to have attacks launched by Ukraine against Russians. And therefore, it's a provocation against Russia and allows Russia and Putin to basically say, hey, we're going to defend our people. We're going to stop this genocide. And even within the last 24 hours now, Putin basically uh, basically claimed that uh, Ukraine created a genocide in certain areas of the eastern part of Ukraine and, and uh, that uh, were the Russian-backed or the Kremlin-backed rebels. And they are now discovering mass graves that Ukraine uh, caused and, and uh, attacks on the Ukrainians. So therefore, they launch a couple of weapons or, or armaments against the Ukrainians in Ukrainian areas like the Donbass region, which is in the southeast region. And they try to provoke Ukraine into firing back and thus creating a war. Do you think that this timing has anything to do with the Olympics and how important is the relationship between China and Russia in this? You know, I, I think it's more uh, not so much in, in the eyes or timeline of the Olympics as it is uh, on Putin's timeline and what he and his military leaders have basically drawn out to basically try to push NATO further to the to the west instead of uh, the NATO expansion that has happened to the to the east with Poland, Lithuania, and now with even Ukraine uh, speaking about liberty and, and trying to create more freedom and and autonomy of their of their sovereign lines. It's really if we looked at this, uh, I don't think the Olympics have anything to do with this. Um, I, I think it's a timeline where. Putin is basically trying to create a story where he can create an invasion of Ukraine and further kind of create a buffer zone with NATO and, and take over Ukraine. One of the things that I'd like to actually mention, and this is a, a easy scenario for us to enter and to solve this issue and to really create a public relations nightmare for not only Russia, but for China, is we have the United Nations Security Council. Why doesn't this administration 
go, and this is an easy way to solve this problem, go to the United Nations Security Council, as well as declare a, an emergency meeting of the United Nations and say that we need peacekeepers and observers in this region. And if the United Nations, and, and then it boxes Russia and China into either voting yes or voting no on those resolutions. And if you send United Nations peacekeepers or, or observers, because we currently have observers, but those observers are from what they call the OSCE, the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which we are a member of, we, we fund it, and we actually have a U.S. ambassador that's, that's an ambassador to the OSCE, a military ambassador, and we have observers currently in Ukraine right now. But if we got the whole world involved in this and we went to the United Nations and declared the United Nations, let's send peacekeepers, let's try to defuse the situation, I think that's the best way to box Russia and, and, and China into uh, into their own corners. Macomb County is experiencing a rash of kill lists in local high schools in the wake of the Oxford High School shooting, with over 40 reported since that tragic day. Macomb County Prosecutor Pete Lacido is taking a zero-tolerance approach, and he talked to Guy Gordon. You know, I think we're living in a time of uh, social media, uh, Internet, and, and, and some of these things that are going on. But also, there's a, a movie somebody told me about that they saw on Netflix called The Death Note. And this is getting ridiculous. I mean, if we're exposing children, and they're called children still, because an adult doesn't hit until 18 in this state. So right. if you're exposing these young students to these kind of things, are they picking up these ideas from the social media, from the, 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 the programming that we are faced with today? And what are we doing to supervise our children? And that's the big thing. But they commonly call them death note or kill list. And the problem is, if it's just a, a note that says on it, kill list, and it names people, is that enough? No, it's not enough to charge under our law. But if there's a threat that says, here's my kill list, and these are the people I'm going to kill, that's enough right there to charge. So uh, in these instances, and, and there were 40 identified, and uh, you know, honestly, Pete, I kind of think of this like mice. If you see one, you're probably missing a, a, a few dozen others, right? So if There's we've a, identified 40, there's got to be a lot more out yeah. there. But in, in those instances where either members of law enforcement or your team or people at Children's Village has a chance to interview these young people, what are they thinking? Do they think it's a joke? Is it a lark? Is it just kind of a pop culture thing? Or do they harbor real violent emotions towards fellow students? I'm going to tell you, Guy, I'm finding out that it's mainly all of the above. And, and here's what we do in Macomb County. First of all, we have a zero-tolerance policy on anything that happens on school grounds. I have to take a proactive approach. We are the second largest school district in the state of Michigan. Right under Detroit, Macomb County has the second highest population of children in schools. So that's the first approach is, look, we take a zero tolerance with this, which means everybody's getting brought in. If we need to hold you because we think you're a threat to the outside world, the school does their own thing under their own school boards that they have policies and protocols in place to suspend the student or not allow them back in school until it's sorted out. I would like immediately if there's a you know psychological report given right away within 24 hours to 48 hours find out what's making 
the student do what they do, 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 as my old psychology teacher told me. Why do people do this? And there's a host of reasons, but if it's a genuine, true threat that they're going to carry it out, like they bought bullets, they bought guns, they bought uh, a bomb, or they put together a bomb, then we need to make sure that we are all in safe harbor after the tragedy in Oxford. And to the point, if you're making a threat or what's called a death note or kill list, what was the stated intent of doing it? Was it the, you know, what would I consider to be a childish play? No, nothing's a childish play after Oxford. We've learned that we have to be proactive and we have to activate immediately, get them out of school, get the parents involved, get the guardians involved, and get a psychologist there to say, is this person a threat to others or themselves? Yeah. Um, you know, they, they talk a lot about ideation, whether it's suicide or whether it's homicide. And it, it, in the children that you've talked with, I mean, do you feel like you may have short-circuited something where they were going to harm themselves or harm others? We have told the school superintendents to trickle down the message not only in unity between ourselves in law enforcement, which is the sheriff and myself, but also with the people that control our schools, that have the authority, the school boards that make the policy, as well as the handbook. Those are already stated in the handbook that says you'll be removed from school. And it's a zero tolerance inside for bullying or any threats or carrying out any of those those actions. So therefore, when a student's looking at 20 years, if it's a terrorist attack, like you see in Oxford, or a 10-year, if they're you know, saying something in preparation of an attack, which is, I'm getting together the weapons that I need. I'm also finding the bullets that I need. Or moving on to a four-year, which is a bomb threat to a school, or right. making a false report over either a telecommunication device, which is a seven-year, Lastly, the one year. We're charging on all levels and let the psychologists and families tell us what's wrong here. This is unacceptable behavior, will not be tolerated, and especially in school where all of our students are supposed to be at Safe Harbor. Longtime WJR institution Frank Beckman passed away from complications due to vascular dementia on February 12th. Frank spent 48 years at WJR, 33 of those years, were his play-by-play man for Michigan football, 17 as a talk show host in the 9 to noon time slot, but he started in the newsroom. Former WJR News Director Dick Hafner and Michigan Journalism Hall of Famer Gene Fogel with Paul W. Smith. Well, I first uh, encountered Frank in 71 we were both kid news reporters on competing radio stations. He was at WPON, Pontiac, and I was at WJBK. A lot of people don't realize that WJBK had a radio station uh, way back then. I'm, I'm, I'm having to go back in the Wayback Machine now to remember all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it later turned into WDEE. So we bumped into each other quite a lot in, uh, in 71 and 72, at, at stories that we were uh, covering. And one thing I remember about Frank, which became evident to me early on, was that he was very competitive. I knew that uh, despite the inflated opinion I had about my own talents, that if I was covering a story that Frank was covering, 
I wasn't going to get the beat on that story. He was not going to get beat on any story because of his competitive nature. Uh, years later, of course, I had the great fortune to work with Frank, and we worked very closely as he was the sports director and I was the news director, and he helped us quite a number of times covering important stories. Uh, a couple of the big ones we covered that Frank uh, helped us on was the uh, attack on Nancy Kerrigan and uh, the building of two stadiums, which we got to beat on. And if it wasn't for Frank, using his sources, we would have had uh, a lot less information on those two stories that we broke uh, on the air. And, and Frank, even though he was present when we did both those stories, he stepped aside and let us do those stories and wanted no credit for himself. Gene Fogel, a quick uh... A uh, question, uh, or rather a quick thought about your involvement with uh, Frank? Yeah, you know, he's won so many awards, we know we know about those. I thought I'd pass along a story that uh, listeners uh, might not know. Uh, Frank was an entertainer, uh, entertainer at heart, we all know that. But not only for his radio family, but also for his family at home. He loved to spend time with his wife and kids, and eventually the grandkids. Well, every now and then, Frank... And I and another DJR icon who's passed away, Rod Hansen, <clears throat> would go out after work to have, uh, well, let's say, a few soda pops. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm an amateur magician, and every now and then someone would ask me to do a trick. Well, this really intrigued Frank, and he thought magic might be a good way to impress his kids and their friends and his classmates. So he wanted me to teach him some magic tricks. Well, we started getting together to practice, and I mean practice. He wanted to practice, practice, practice until he had magic down perfect, which, of course, is why he was such a success in everything he did, because he had such great preparation. And so he would, he would show tricks to his kids. Uh, I gave him some tricks, and he would come into work, and he'd have a big gleam on his eyes and a smile on his face, and he would thank me for selling, for teaching him some, a few magic tricks. So, you know, I was always glad to have played a small part in the role of the magic that is Frank Beckman. I, I am amazed that you tell that story, Gene Fogel. I did not know that story, but I did know Frank loved to play around with magic. And I remember many, many years ago going to, uh, I don't remember if it was Jonathan's school or Tory's school, uh, his uh, daughter and son, but Frank asked me to go with him. I did, and he presented to the class, and he did magic, which I, at that time, didn't know that Frank did magic. And now I know the rest of the story. Gene Fogel, you taught him all the magic he knew. They'll do it for Pod Suey this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.